0: One of the most terrible experiences of my life was my first girlfriend. <laughs> I was in seventh grade, and our school went on a trip to, it was a science trip to the snow, but where we would all go skiing. So it was like a skiing trip with a little bit of sciencey stuff in there to excuse being able to go up to the mountains and go skiing, and there was this girl there, and we were in school together, and she caught my eye, and I liked her, and she liked me, and you know, one way or another, I basically asked her if she would be my girlfriend, and up there during this trip, I kind of knew what to do with that, you know, it was like we would ride on the ski lift, Together. That was the extent of my game at that time. It was like, okay, that's, I guess you're my girlfriend, I'm your boyfriend, we're gonna ride on the ski lift together. I don't even know if I skied down the hill with her, but we would ride up the ski lift together. And so that was kind of about it. That was the extent of it for a few days. But I remember when the trip was over, we all got on these buses, we loaded up the buses, and I got on the bus with her, and I went to a section of the bus and sat down next to her, and all of her friends were around and kind of hanging out. And I remember thinking to myself, I got to get out of this. (laughs) Like, I want to sit with my friends. I want to be with my friends, and I have no idea what to do here. And now I'm hanging out with a bunch of girls. I'm a seventh grade boy. I do not like this. And so I just, the whole ride, I was scheming, like, how I got to get out of this. So I can't remember how I did it, but I think our relationship lasted like another day or two once we got home, and then it was over. It was a short, brief, fiery four-day romance. (laughs) Many of you, you think God is like that. You think God is just waiting. He's just waiting for a slip-up, He's just waiting for a mistake. He's just waiting for a season in your life where you fail. He's just waiting for some kind of way to get out of relationship with you. You, you think that he's, he's demanding perfection, and then when that doesn't happen, he's, he's ready to dismiss himself from that friendship with you. Look, the Bible, the, the truth of the Bible, the, the, the Scripture, the entirety of it, Genesis through Revelation, should disabuse us of that notion. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and He said, where, where are you? I want you, I want to be in friendship with you, connection with with you, fellowship with you. I do not want to destroy you, but I want you and I'm going to work even if it takes thousands of years to bring forth my son to humanity to die on the cross, to bring you back into relationship with me. And David's story should also disabuse us of that idea or notion. Because if there was ever a moment where God could have said, we're done. The relationship is over. I gave you everything. I let you be king. I gave you favor. I let you write some of my word. You have been successful in every area of your life. And this is how you repay me. You take another man's wife, one of your soldiers, one of your chief warriors. You take his wife. You impregnate her. You try to cover it up to make it seem as if the pregnancy is from his body, but when he won't go along with your plan, you make another plan to see him murdered on the battlefield. And now you've taken her to be your wife. The child has been born, and you think you've gotten away with it. I am done with this relationship. But what we learn in this passage is that God was not finished with David. God loved David. In fact, as you look at this story, one thing that you should come away with is the understanding that it was not David that was in pursuit of God. There was about a year gap in in time between chapter 11 and 12. He was not speaking to God. He was not confessing to God. He was not going to Nathan the prophet, but God sent the prophet, and God sent his word, and God pursued this man because he was not done with his relationship with David. And so as we look at this, I want you to not only see David, but I want you to see yourself. I want you to see the way the Lord pursues not only humanity, but the way that he pursues you, because he longs to come into deeper relationship, connection, and friendship with you. One of the first things that God did to draw David back into relationship with himself was to prepare David on the inside. Did you see that? You know, there he is. It's been about a year. Nathan the prophet shows up. It's interesting. Some people think that David was actually at that time on his calendar doing the thing that kings in Israel would do, that he was judging people publicly and different cases would be brought to him and he would weigh in on those cases. Later on in David's life, we'll see him doing just that You know, just sort of making judgments, acting as the 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 judge and the jury for different complicated cases uh, there in Israel. And some people think that Nathan came during one of those episodes and says, "Here's what's happened." Other people, of course, think that this was a private episode, something that was just between Nathan and David. But Nathan comes to David and he tells him this story. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's a parable. But he says, Look, there was a rich man, he had everything. There was a poor man, he had hardly anything. He had one little lamb that he brought into his home. It was like a pet to him, ate from his cup, ate from the dish. He loved it like he loved a daughter. And the rich man had a visitor come to his house. He didn't want to feed the visitor with any of his own flocks. And so he took the poor man's sheep, slaughtered it, and served it to his guest. And David flew into a rage. He said, the man deserves death. He must repay fourfold. Now in the law, in the Old Testament, if you stole livestock in the the nation of Israel, you were to repay what you stole fourfold. And so David is thinking about the law, but he wants more than the law. He wants death. That's what he desires. He wants death. You see, Jesus warned us that it is easy when a log is in our eye to try to see the splinter in someone else's eye. And David, he could see, man. He thought, this guy deserves to die. Unwittingly, he was pronouncing his own judgment. I deserve to die. I've done the very thing that this man had done. But you see, when God sent Nathan and gave him, gave David this parable or this teaching or this story, what was God doing? God was preparing David's heart. He was readying David. He was bringing him forward slowly, surely to that point where Nathan would say, you're the man, David would be confronted with his sin and he would repent of his sin. God was doing the work to get David where he needed to go. Now, as we read in Psalm 51 and in Psalm 32, we already know that God was busily working not just through Nathan and the messenger and the word that was being declared to David. This wasn't the first time that David interacted with this. No, not at all. God was working with David inside his own heart as well. I think it was Pastor Matt who taught from Psalm 32, and I'll read to you verse 3 and 4 from the message. He said, When I kept it all inside, my bones turned to powder. My words became day-long groans. The pressure, this is David writing, never let up, all the juices of my life dried up. What an incredible description. You know, there I was, walking through life. Nobody knew what I'd done. Maybe some people suspected this or that. It was a short pregnancy after all, but I was going through life. My sin was not uncovered, but the juices of my life were dried up. My vitality was gone. The joy that I used to have was gone. And here's the thing. Too often, we think when the Word of God confronts us, when the messenger of God confronts us or when the juices of our lives are drying up as a result of our own sin. You know how we want to interpret that? So often we want to interpret that as God saying, I'm done with you. I'm putting that dryness in your spirit. I'm giving you that messenger to convict you, not to convict you, but to condemn you and serve notice that I am finished with you. But that is not at all what God was doing. God was doing that in David's heart in order to bring him to a place of confession, repentance, so that they could come together in fellowship once again. If I could say it like this, God missed David. He missed David going out into the wilderness and writing songs and playing his harp. He missed David's prayers. He missed David going into the house of the Lord with a clean heart and worshiping him. He missed David pouring over scripture and learning about his God. He missed his man, David, as we had to do something to prepare David to come back to him. You see, the Lord is so good. He will not leave his children alone. He will pursue you. He will speak to you. He will draw you. He will do what he has to do to get into the deeper parts of your heart. And it might not even be that you've been running from the Lord and there's some kind of thing where he's trying to work in you. There might just be a corner of your heart that he's trying to get at, that he's trying to touch. I was thinking about this yesterday at our men's breakfast that we have. Pastor Aaron Maddox from Jesus Center Church in Seaside. He, which meets at five o'clock at I think Faith Lutheran Church on Hillby if you want to go visit. But He was teaching us, and he just shared from Matthew chapter 9, about the time where the four men brought the paralytic to Jesus, and there was no room to bring him into the house, so they opened up the roof and lowered the man down to Jesus. And Jesus, rather than saying, your sins are forgiven, I mean, excuse me, uh, be healed, rise up and walk. He said, son, your sins are forgiven you. And then later said, so that you might know that I can forgive, I say to you, rise up and walk. Take your bed, rise up and walk. And Aaron was just making the point. He said, you know, the man probably internally had a little argument, like, Jesus, you don't know my real problem. You know, it should be obvious to you, but apparently you don't. Thanks for the whole sin thing, but my real problem is I'm paralyzed. Please deal with my real problem. And Aaron was just making the point, no, Jesus knows what our real problem is you know there's this thing going on sin and when he was sharing it there was just something about it some some way that as he was describing it it was just so beautifully put that it struck me that oh yeah I've often thought of that passage as a justification passage. You know, the Lord looks at people who are lost, a humanity that is lost, and he says, I see your real need. You're, you're wondering, you know, what about evil and why are there all these atrocities in the world and all these different kind of things? But your real need is the forgiveness of sin. That is the deepest thing that I came to solve. And as a result of that, I'll eventually solve all the other things, but that's the deepest thing that I'm trying to get at is the sin. I want to bring you justification. But the way he was sharing it, it just struck me. You know, the Lord will also, he's looked, he looks into my heart, he looks into your heart, and he sees the real problem that is keeping you from sanctification. And just as Aaron was teaching it, I just had this thought about how terrified sometimes we are in some of the best times of life. There's something about human beings. that when things are going good, we have even the same for it. Knock on, and this isn't wood right here, but knock on wood. You know, or like things are going really good. I'm getting ready for that trial, you know, that must be coming. Have you ever had that experience if you're a parent where you're standing over your child's crib and you're watching them sleep? you think, man, they're just so beautiful. They're so sweet. They're quiet right now. This is wonderful. And then had the thought, what if, what if this happens? What if they get sick? What if I get sick? What if I die? What if, the, you know, what if? There's just that thing. It's, it's, what, what is it? It's not sin in the sense that we're making a deliberate thing, like I'm going to rebel against the Lord, but it's the result of sin, brokenness inside of us that we cannot trust the Lord. He will do what he has to do to prepare our hearts so he can get into that deeper space in our heart because he knows the real need. Now, moving on in the story, I should kind of pick it up a little bit. Uh, You know, David says what he says. You know, this guy should die. He should repay fourfold. And Nathan announces, but you're that man. You know, you've done What that man did, you know, he did it in a proverbial sense, but you did it to Uriah. He had his wife. You were the king. You had anybody you wanted, and you took his wife that he loved for yourself. I mean, you did this thing. What this guy did was nothing compared to what you have done. And when the Lord begins speaking to David directly rather than indirectly through the parable, when he begins speaking to David directly, you probably noticed he begins to confront or contend with these attitudes that David had previously held. And one of the attitudes that he confronts, I'll I'll share share with you three of them, is that he had despised God's grace. What's God's grace? He he despised everything that God had done for him. That's why he says in verse 7 and 8, I made you the king. I delivered you out of Saul's hand. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives. Put them in your household. I gave you Israel. I gave you Judah. If this were too little, the end of verse 8, look at that. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. You see, David had come to a place. His attitude was, God hasn't given me all that much. He had begun to despise God's grace. He'd begun to despise God's favor. And God had to confront that attitude. He had to contend with that attitude. You see, for a believer, this is really what sin so often is. It is an affront to the grace of God, the gospel, the cross, the Holy Spirit, the word of God, all the blessings that the Lord has given. We say, it's not enough for me. I gotta go beyond. I gotta take something that God has not given to me. It takes God's goodness and responds with an undignified insult it is an injurious and traitorous disrespect of the absolute and total kindness of god i mean really in one sense that's what sin is as we 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 get all this from the lord he's blessed us in so many ways and we say it's not enough i want more that's what david did he saw bathsheba i deserve her he had an attitude of despising God's grace. But not only that, notice in verse 9, he despised God's word. That's why God asked in verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. Not only did he look down on what God had given to him, he apparently began to look down upon God's word. He began to love his own thoughts, his own meditations, We think that David wrote the first psalm. There's no superscript saying that in our Bibles, but we many times think that David wrote Psalm 1 because he wrote so many psalms that are unnamed. And in that psalm, he talks about delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating upon it day and night. But David had ceased to do that during this period of his life. He'd begun to meditate upon his own thoughts, his own dreams, his own philosophies, he'd begun to despise the word of the Lord. And not only that, he'd begun to despise, thirdly, God himself. It says in verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. That's what happens when you despise the word of the Lord. You're despising the God who has spoken the word of the Lord. When you despise the grace of the Lord and all that he's given, you're despising the God who has given you that grace. Is not this the pattern that the people of Israel followed when they came out of Egypt? You remember them? You know, God graced them, first of all. All kinds of grace. Crazy grace. You know, they're there 400 years in slavery. They cry out to the God of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, hey, do you remember us? Can you save us? And so Moses comes in, all these plagues. I mean, it was total grace. Many of the plagues the Egyptians experienced, but the Israelites did not. Like when the plague of the great darkness that could be felt came upon the people of Egypt, it was light in Goshen where the people of Israel lived. So everybody else is feeling this darkness, but the Israelites were good. And eventually the Passover came, then the Red Sea came, and they go out into the wilderness and they come to bitter water, they complain about it, God turns it sweet, they come to a rock, they're thirsty, God strikes it through Moses, and water comes out and they drink, they're hungry, and manna begins to fall from the heavens, quail comes, God miraculously feeds them over and over again. I mean, if you were to say, like, who are the favored grace target people of God on earth at that time, you would say, those people, the people of Israel, they just have all these blessings, all this grace. But then, they also had the word. There was a time where Moses, their leader, he went up to the mountaintop for 40 days. He, where's Moses? He's up there with God. He comes down. He's got the Ten Commandments. He's got the law of God written down. He begins to teach them. This is how God wants us to live. We have a God. He has spoken to us. He has written it down. He wanted to reveal himself to us and come to think of it, the way that he decided to reveal himself was by writing down his thoughts for his people. It's a very novel idea. So they had the word of God and then they also had the presence of God. They had the cloud during the day, the pillar of fire at night and at the tabernacle once they built it, they had the glory of the Lord in the Holy of Holies. They had everything that David had, the grace of God, the word of God, the presence of God, yet they began to despise it, that generation, and they were kept out of all that the Lord had planned for their lives. And so God comes to David and he confronts those attitudes. You've despised my grace, you've despised my word, and you've despised me. He has to do that in our lives. But when David fell under conviction... He said to Nathan in verse 13, I've sinned against the Lord. And when David said that, I've heard some people explain this as if what David was saying was, I haven't sinned against Bathsheba. I haven't sinned against Uriah. I haven't sinned against Joab, who I made him murder Uriah. I haven't sinned against Israel, the people that I'm leading. I haven't sinned against any of those people. I've sinned against the Lord. That's not what David's saying. What he's saying is, ultimately, I understand that my sin is ultimately against the Lord. He's pure, He's holy. I've sinned against the Lord. I've despised His presence, I've despised His word, I've despised His grace, I've sinned against the Lord. But notice what Nathan says to David He says, The Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. It's almost like what the Lord's saying is, Hey, I, I heard what your suggestion was for the rich man with the sheep, I heard that suggestion, death, with the fourfold payment, but death, I heard that, but I'm going to reject it, you're not going to (laughs) die, I I, I know that you were rooting for death, but David, I'm not going to give it to you, and Nathan has that beautiful line there, but the Lord has also put away your sin. Now, when Nathan says that to David, we understand, of course, that that is a costly phrase. God is not this forgiveness fairy in the sky, you know, who just sees people. He's holy. People do unholy things, and he's like, wing, forgiveness. No, when he says, God has put away your sin, it's another way of saying just like the animals had to die for Adam and Eve to be clothed, just like the sacrificial animals had to die for the blood to be spilled and for them to be burnt up on the altar, there is a cost that is attached to the possibility of forgiveness. And of course, God ultimately knew and understood as he said this to David that this would mean the giving of his own son to die, that his blood would be shed so that David and any other human being who wants it can be forgiven of their sin. This was a costly phrase from God, not a cheap phrase, not a magical phrase, but a costly planned out, thought out, thorough, from the foundations of the world, Christ was slain, phrase from God. And so he announced it to him, God has put away your sin, apparently God saw the genuineness of David's contrition. And though his sin was heinous, God's grace was more than sufficient for David. Now, how did David respond to all this stuff? He hears about all these consequences that are coming his way. And they were serious, right? Verse 10, the sword would not depart from his household. And that's true. We're going to read of those episodes in the next couple of months. We're going to read about... Uh, rape within his family, one of his daughters experiencing that. We're going to read about uh, the murder of one of his sons against the other son, who was actually the, uh, the offender in the rape. Uh, we're going to read about uh, his general killing that son who killed his other son. We're gonna, there's going to be all kinds of bloodshed in David's life, including even right now. We already read it. His own child is going to die. And then God said that evil against David would rise up from his own house. Eventually a day would come where his son Absalom would steal the throne from his father and take his father's wives and in a very public display, make it obvious that they were now his rather than his father's. It's a gruesome scene. God announces this to to David. All of this would come Because David, the man of God, very publicly receiving the promises of God, God could not allow David to get away with this. And David's life has served as a great warning for us for thousands of years now. But what did David do? He went in, and he fasted, and he mourned before God. He's asking God, God, please give life to my child. Then the child dies, he goes in, he worships the Lord, he comes out, they're like, what, what happened there? You're eating food now? He says, I, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. That's a phrase that's been a comfort to many parents over the years who have lost little ones. They, they can't come back to me, but I, someday, I'll be reunited with them. But what did David do? He, it, he if I could say it this way, accepted God's decree. He did not chafe at God's discipline, but he received it. He did not become terrified of God. That's why he hoped. He had hope. He had hope that the Lord might turn and allow his child to live. He did not feel doomed, but instead expressed hope in God's grace and favor that this child might live. He did not run away from God, but he ran to the Lord. In fact, it says there in verse 20, this is my favorite verse of this whole chapter, Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. This is an intense moment. I think this is the part in David's life where he, if I had to guess, actually wrote Psalm 51. Where he he prayed it under the inspiration of the Spirit and then wrote it down. Where, Where from Psalm 51 he said things like, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He said things like, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He pleaded with God, purge me, clean me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. He prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then he promised God, if you do that, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Do good to Jerusalem or Zion in your good pleasure. Build up its walls. Look, I'm making a big deal out of this because I think that this moment, David going in and worshiping the Lord, it was the thing that colored the rest of his life. I think it's easy for us to to just from our reading of it, come to the conclusion that the second half of David's life was the worst half of David's life. That the first half was the awesome half. You know, teenager, prophet rolls into town, you're the future king in Israel, anoints him with the horn of oil, goes out, kills a bear, kills a lion, taking care of his father's sheep. It was apparently just practice, though, for the time that he would kill Goliath and become the hero of Israel. People singing, Saul slaying his thousands, David, his tens of thousands. He gets to marry the king's daughter, the princess. He becomes best friends with the king's son, the prince. Things are good. He's living in the palace. He's serving the king. And even when Saul goes mad and David has to run into the wilderness, we still can think of those as the good days in David's life. Yeah, it was difficult, but God was speaking to him, and he was speaking to God, and he was writing songs, and he was pure. He was pure then. And Saul would come into town. Saul would pursue him, and he would not extend his hand to touch the Lord's anointed. He kept himself clean. He was holy. He was righteous. And men just kept coming out to him. We want to be with you. We want to follow you. And his army built and finally Saul died and Judah came and said, we want you to be the king. He said, okay. And then seven years later, all of Israel, we want you to be the king. Okay. He wins Jerusalem. Things are growing. The word of God is going out and the nation is expanding. We think of those as the good days in David's life. And then Bathsheba, sin. And for the rest of his life, all this pain all this heartache, the sword, the disappointment, the frustration, he ruined what God was doing in his life. But perhaps we've seen it all wrong. Perhaps the second half of David's life, the part where he was humbled by his sin and glad for his restoration, was in a sense sweeter and full of life and depth that could not have come to him previously. Perhaps there was a new wrinkle or facet to the nature of God that David got to see because he failed, received God's grace and forgiveness, repented of his sin, and ran to God. Which of us, in thinking about Peter's life, would say that the second half of his life was worse than the first half? No, we we see him, we see some successes in the Gospels, but also some failures. But then a major and significant failure when he denied Jesus three times. Jesus looked at him, Peter looked at Jesus, he wept, he went out, he was a broken man. Jesus rose from the dead, appeared to Peter, but they had a special appointment at one appearance. On the coast of the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus made a fire, the other disciples were around who had joined Peter in fishing. Peter is there before the Lord, and Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Peter had denied the Lord three times. Three times, Jesus says, do you love me? Lord, you, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep, tend my lambs, tend my sheep. Jesus was restoring Peter back into relationship with him, and then God used Peter's life in beautiful and amazing ways. We would all say that the second half of his life, there was a power there. There was something beautiful there. And and maybe some of that came from him coming face to face with his own failure and limitation and then feeling God's love in the midst of all of that. There's a story, a little portion of, I know many of you are fans of C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. And in the most famous of the books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there are these four children, the Pevensey children, they go into the land of Narnia. And there's this great prophecy and plan that all this evil is going to be reversed and all of that through these four human children that come into the land. But one of them, Edmund, oh, Edmund, if you know the story, you know, just Edmund, don't go, don't do it. But he falls in love with the witch and her wares and all of that, and he eventually puts in jeopardy the whole plan. Eventually, this moment came, comes where Aslan, who is the Christ figure of the series, this lion, he sends his forces to rescue Edmund and bring him back to himself. And then the children, the siblings, they see Edmund. You know, they want to rip his head off. You know, like, how could you? You betrayed us. You put the whole thing in jeopardy. But what they saw As soon as, let me read it to you, as soon as they had breakfasted, they all went out and there they saw Aslan and Edmund walking together in the dewy grass, apart from the rest of the court. There is no need to tell you and no one ever heard what Aslan was saying, but it was a conversation which Edmund never forgot. You see, for the rest of his life, Edmund would have a different kind of relationship with Aslan than the other children. There was a facet there. There was a a thing there that they couldn't really know and experience because he had gone through a failure and Aslan had brought him back. Maybe for you, the prophet or the words of Job would be appropriate at this time. He said in Job 13 verse 15, Though he slay me, still I will hope in him. Even if what everything I'm going through right now is somehow God's discipline, because that's what all his friends were saying. Even if that's what God is doing, I will still hope in him. You see, there is something beautiful about the believer who experiences the discipline of the Lord, the lash of the Lord, the wooden spoon of the Lord. If you grew up in Nate Holdridge's household. The wooden spoon of the Lord. If if that was what you experienced from the Lord, and then you still, you run to Him. You embrace Him. You come to Him. Now the story ends, or the chapter ends, with what? David's married to Bathsheba. There's no changing that. They have a child. They're, They're married. They have a child, Solomon. Solomon is born. David names him Solomon, but Nathan the prophet comes along and he's like, hey, God loves this boy. Has a little conversation, probably implied or said to him, he'll be the one who sits on your throne. None of these other guys, but Solomon, he'll be the one. And he would be the one, he'll be the one. And so God gave Solomon a little pet name, Jedediah. It means beloved of the Lord. And then David goes out and he wins a victory. God had a future for him. Some of you are here today. You think that you have so derailed everything in your life through something you've done, attitudes you've held. You think you've so derailed your life that there's no possibility of you experiencing a new beautiful thing that God wants to do. But he is trying to draw you back into full relationship with him. He wants you so badly. When I was studying for this this week, I was just trying to get my brain into this story. So I made a list at one point of everything that David did in the story. That was kind of my first kind of thought, like, oh, let's just think about what everything David did. And, you know, I went through it. There were like some things, you know, that David did. But then I kind of realized, like, David's really receiving this. What did the Lord do? The Lord sent Nathan. The Lord spoke to David. The Lord forgave David. The Lord brought consequences. The Lord loved Solomon. The Lord gave David a future. And the Lord, man, he wants to do the same for us as well this morning. He wants to bring us into a deeper relationship with himself. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.